Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, a Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's conversation, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, the past and future of workers' well-being. This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series, in which we explore the issues affecting economic opportunity in the United States, implications for workers, business, and communities across the country, and ideas for change. We're incredibly grateful to the Prudential, to Prudential Financial, Walmart, the Cerna Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, Bloomberg, and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of our Opportunity in America discussion series. Today's conversation is the fourth event in a series of conversations that we've been having on the history and future of U.S. labor law, conversations to shape the future of work. In this series, we've been exploring the role labor laws have played in shaping work and opportunity, how these laws align with our values about work and opportunity, and what changes in laws or in their implementation might improve job quality and conditions for all workers. In this fourth conversation, we'll be discussing the Occupational Safety and Health Act passed in 1970. The law established the Occupational Health and Safety Administration to ensure safe and healthy healthful working conditions for workers by setting and enforcing standards and by providing training, outreach, education, and assistance. This law responded to real hazards working people faced. And April 28th was um, Workers' Memorial Day, which commemorates the day in 1971 that the law went into effect. This law has made a real difference in working people's lives. According to OSHA statistics, worker deaths in America are down on average from about 38 workers, worker deaths a day in 1970 to 15 a day in 2019 with a much larger labor force. But today, of course, we have new concerns about health and safety in the workplace. The enduring challenges of COVID-19, along with shifts in our economy, including the rise of subcontracting and gig work and what that means about who's responsible for um, establishing a safe and healthy workplace. These all make it now an opportune time to think about the successes of the law, as well as what could be improved to meet the challenges of today and to plan for a better tomorrow. We have a fabulous panel today with us to talk about all of these issues. Um, and before we start, I want to make two quick notes. First, um, I want everybody to mark their calendars because on May 26, we'll be having a hybrid in-person and live streamed event called A Worker's Bill of Rights, What We Want and How to Get There. And this is uh, will be an exciting conclusion of our series on the history and future of labor law. So I hope you all join us for that. Uh, second, before we begin, uh, just a quick review of our technology. All attendees are muted. Uh, we do very much welcome your conversations. Please use the Slido box on the right side of your screen for questions. Uh, question, questions can be submitted and upvoted in the Q&A tab. We also know that we have a lot of people with expertise in our audience today. So please do share your work, experiences, perspectives, comments. Um, please share those in the ideas tab that is also in the Slido box. We always appreciate your feedback. Uh, before you leave today, please take a moment to uh, respond to our survey in the polls tab, also in the Slido box. We're thrilled with today's participation. So, uh, and we'll try to get to as many questions as we can uh, during today's discussion. Uh, we also encourage you to tweet about this conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. If you have any technical issues during the webinar, please do message us 
or email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. The webinar is being recorded and will be shared following this event on our web website and via email. Closed captions are also available. Click, please click the CC button at the bottom of your video to activate those if you would like that. Um, and now I will briefly introduce our, our panel for today. Um, they're a great panel and I encourage you to take a look at their bios on our website, but I'm not gonna read all of that to you. I'll just quickly say uh, names and affiliations. Uh, we have with us today, Magali Licoli, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Venceremos. David Michaels, Professor at the George Washington University School of Public Health. Uh, David also served as the Assistant Secretary of Labor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration dur during the Obama administration. Uh, Saket Sony, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Resilience Force. And John Woodsum, President of the Barton Mallow Company. And we're also delighted to have with us today, Andrea Hsu uh, to moderate the discussion. Andrea is currently labor and workforce correspondent with NPR. During the coronavirus pandemic, she reported a series of stories on the pandemic uneven toll on women and has recently covered the unionization efforts at Amazon and Starbucks. Um, so we're delighted to have Andrea here with us to moderate today's conversation. Andrea, thanks so much for joining us. Let me turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Maureen, and thank you to everyone at the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program for putting on this fantastic series of conversations. I have learned so much from the broad array of panelists that you've brought together over the past couple months, and I'm excited about our conversation today around OSHA. You know, before the pandemic, workplace safety was not a topic that made headlines very often. You'd hear about it when there was a horrific event, like a mine disaster or an explosion at a chemical plant or a factory fire. And yet every day, as Maureen said, workers were getting injured and too many were dying on the job. Well, two years ago, COVID turned the spotlight on workplace safety almost from the beginning. Remember those early news reports from Kirkland, Washington, when the virus swept through a life care nursing home. Soon it became apparent that nursing home workers everywhere were being exposed to the coronavirus and had little to protect them. I spoke with a geriatric nursing assistant in Maryland who had gone to Sherwin-Williams to purchase painter suit and gloves because they had no PPE. And of course, the virus was spreading elsewhere too. We saw huge outbreaks at meatpacking plants where workers stand side by side for hours with no barrier between them. Overnight, the coronavirus had made an already dangerous line of work that much more dangerous. And in recent months, I have been covering the union campaigns at Starbucks and Amazon. And what's been enlightening to me is to hear workers talk about what it is that drove them to organize. It, it is money, as one might assume, but it's also so much more than that. I sat down with some Starbucks workers in Virginia, including Galen Berg, who's been at the store for four years and has worked their way up to shift supervisor. Early in the pandemic, Starbucks closed their store for about six weeks amid all the uncertainty and they sent workers home with pay. Well, during that time, the store workers met on Zoom to discuss how they would feel safe coming back. Galen Berg told me the store staff came up with this idea to put a table and a tent outside the door so that customers wouldn't have to come inside the store. You know, customers could place their orders on the app. The baristas would make the drinks and place them under the tent for pickup. Well, that idea was nixed by management who said there were food safety issues, which, you know, maybe there were. But for the store workers, getting overruled was frustrating. They felt they didn't have a say in how to keep themselves safe. And that frustration just continued to build throughout the pandemic. Meanwhile, over at Amazon, something similar was going on. 
Chris Smalls was a supervisor at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island in March of 2020. He described what it was like being in a crowded break room one day. You know, CNN is on the TV. They're watching public health officials urging people to social distance to avoid crowds. And here they were sitting shoulder to shoulder with no way to social distance. And meanwhile, coworkers were falling ill with COVID. So Chris Smalls decided to lead a walkout to demand that Amazon close the facility for a cleaning. He was fired the day of the walkout. Amazon says he violated quarantine. He had been exposed to one of his coworkers who'd gotten sick. And shortly thereafter, he started organizing workers. And just uh, April 1st, um, his warehouse voted to unionize. And when you look up the demands that the Amazon labor union has laid out, right up there at the top are health and safety issues. They want longer breaks. They say 15 minutes isn't enough given the physically taxing nature of the work that they do. When a worker is injured, they want to be given paid time off for the rest of the day. And th these are just two workplaces I've described, but imagine this happening all across the country in companies big and small. You know, the pandemic has led to a real reckoning about the dangers that some workers face every day when they go to work and about how a disproportionate share of these workers are low wage workers, people of color, people who traditionally don't have a voice. And it's also led to some tough questions about the role of government, the role of one small agency, OSHA, and its capacity to keep workers safe from hazards on the job as it was created to do. So I'm eager to jump into to today's conversation and I wanna start by hearing from each of our panelists today about how they got involved in workplace safety. So David, I'm gonna start with you. You and I have talked a number of times over the last year. Can you give us a brief history of the Occupational Safety and Health Act and what conditions were like before it was passed in 1970? Well, well, thank you, Andrea. And listen, let me thank Maureen and all the folks at Aspen for this whole initiative, which I think is really incredibly important right now. Um, so I was, I was introduced to worker safety and health by an inspirational labor leader, Tony Mizaki, who was with the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, now part of the Steelworkers. Tony understood the need for labor to work with public health scientists to improve worker protections. And he brought me into it. I'm an epidemiologist. Earlier in my career, I did research on the health of workers exposed to asbestos, solvents, lead, other environmental hazards. Although I also focused on social determinants of health outside the workplace. Um, I started the first epidemiology unit at a jail in the United States at, at Rikers Island, where we look at infectious diseases like HIV and tuberculosis, homelessness and mental illness. And during the AIDS epidemic, I developed a mathematical model to estimate the number of children whose mothers, died, whose mothers died of HIV AIDS. I was fortunate to be able to switch over from number crunching to policy, and I served under President Clinton as Assistant Secretary of Energy for Environment, Safety, and Health. And that's the uh, chief public health position at the nuclear weapons complex. And, and then uh, President Obama asked me to run OSHA, where I stayed for more than seven years. I was the longest serving administrator in the agency's history. So the OSHA law was enacted in 1970, a little over 50 years ago. And in some ways, it was a revolutionary law. One of the early OSHA administrators called it a new addition to the Bill of Rights, the right to a safe workplace. And, and while that is hyperbole to some extent, it did make a fundamental change in the relationship between workers and employers around workplace safety. You know, before the law, workers in most states had no recourse if an employer told them to do a dangerous job, to go up on that roof with no fall protection. They could do that job and risk their life, or they could be risk being fired 
there was no other recourse. The purpose of the OSHA law was to ensure that workers could leave work at the end of their shift as healthy as when they started that shift. And the law was very clear. It's the responsibility of the employer to provide that safe workplace. And you know, before the law, there really was carnage in the American workplace. Uh, as you heard from Maureen, um, before the law, there were estimated 38 workers killed every day on the job. Uh, and that doesn't include occupational diseases like cancer or lung disease from asbestos or silica. We've made great progress preventing those, but still not enough, and the, the toll remains very high. Well, thank you, David. Now let's move on to Magali. Tell us how you became involved in organizing poultry workers and um, your organization, Venceremos. I understand it's Spanish for We Will Win. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me to speak about the current work that poultry workers are doing. And well, I began uh, doing this work because I was uh, 10 years ago, I was working in a community clinic two blocks uh, from one of the biggest Tyson's plants in Springdale. And doing that job, I was uh, helping former poultry workers to get into programs. But through that job, I learned the stories of these workers, of how these workers were not able to work anymore. Many of them had respiratory problems that needed uh higher like uh, healthcare and they didn't have any resources. So for me, it was learning about like how women were not able to work in the forties that were not able to hold their babies, that many of them lost their babies while working in this industry. It was to me, it was not an isolated case. It was a systemic case that we needed to, to talk about it. And whenever I began talking about this issue, I learned that really it was a taboo and it still is, but we are changing that right now. Uh, because 10 years ago, nobody wanted to talk about poultry workers. They, they would talk about immigrants, but nobody wanted to talk about the labor side of those immigrants and doing these jobs. And so to me, it was um, a moment to, to reflect. And I was angry, but it was a moment to not just be angry. It was a moment for me to take responsibility and to do something alongside to this, with these workers. So from there, I started my journey and getting involved in the labor movement, learning how to organize workers. And in, I was the, uh, the executive director of the Worker Justice Center later on. And then in 2019, I, I, a group of poultry women workers and myself co-founded Venceremos, an organization that works to protect the human rights of poultry workers because we saw that it was the need to form an organization specifically to address the issues in the poultry industry. Thank you. And Saket, I know that you also work with immigrant workers. Um, you've been on the front lines of helping many workers who have um, to, to have better access to working conditions. And you work with um, the resilience workforce. Tell us how you got involved in this work and describe who are resilience workers. Well, um, uh, uh, absolutely. And again, thanks for the amazing reporting you're doing, Andrea. And thank you, uh, Maureen, for this invitation and this great initiative. Um, I'll just start by describing how this workforce first gathered um, and gained a foothold in the economy. Um, in the fall of 2005, at the end of August, um, Hurricane Katrina made landfall in Mississippi. A few days later, um, in New Orleans, the levees were breached and the rains and flooding that followed these events turned 
the U.S. Gulf Coast overnight into the world's largest construction site. And not an ordinary construction site where things are orderly and clean and schedules can be respected, um, but an extraordinary site of trauma and disaster uh, where um, toxic sludge was mixed with rubble and electrical lines were tangled up um, in, in, in brick and mortar um, and hundreds of thousands of people, uh, many working class, mostly African-American, um, left that region. Um, in order to return home, there needed to be a vast and rapid repair effort and a very uh, heroic long-term uh, rebuilding. That rebuilding was largely done by migrant workers who arrived in the Gulf Coast from um, states and countries far and wide. And they became a resilience workforce. They became the workers who were the engine of the recovery. Now, Katrina was supposed to be a once in a hundred year storm, but as uh, warmer weather and climate change fueled uh, natural disasters, these hurricanes, floods, and fires became more frequent and more destructive. So last year, we counted 20 uh, disasters that caused a billion dollars or more of damage each. And that's just the billion dollar disasters. As that's happened, this labor demand has grown and the need for the, res uh, the resilience workforce has uh, exponentially um, expanded. So you've got these workers now who... Um, organize their lives like farm workers of yesteryear, um, moving where hurricanes, floods, and fires go. They roll into a city 72 hours after the disaster, and they work for months, sometimes years, rebuilding. They do it in toxic conditions. They do it in record-breaking heat. Um, and they do it living in their cars and often at the end of subcontracting chains um, that don't follow even the laws that do exist. Um, so that's the context in which the resilience workforce uh, is, um, is working. Resilience force was founded after um, all of these hurricanes hit the Southeast. Um, our members are migrant workers, many immigrant, but many US born, who nonetheless are migrating as they follow this work. Um, and, um, the reason we're so concerned with health and safety and so invested in this discussion is because these workers are working in a deeply toxic and traumatic environment. Um, they're homeless while they do their work. They're working in the heat. They're breathing substances that may not even be known. Um, and, um, and many of them have been doing this for a decade or more. So, you know, this is the, these are the front lines of climate change and we want to raise conditions. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Now we're going to go to John, who uh, we're lucky to have uh, to represent the employer voice here. Tell us a little bit about your company, its values and how you've, how you've incorporated workplace safety into who you are as a company. Sure. Thanks, Andrea. And Again, thanks to, uh, to Maureen and the Aspen Institute. Listening just to the introductions for me has been inspiring. Um, you know, Andrea, David, Magali, Socket, um, what you do for a living is, is fascinating. And, and my story and, and Bartomeu's uh, story is likely less so uh, as it relates to this particular subject matter. But, hey, really grateful to be here. So the company that I lead um, 
is a construction company, very basic. And it, when you think about a large construction organization, uh, we would fit, um, you know, at a high level terms, kind of the basic bill. We've been building um, based out of Metro Detroit, primarily following the auto, in, you know, the ups and downs of the automotive industry for just shy of 100 years now. Um, and tying this into you know, occupational health and, and worker well-being, certainly in those hundred years, uh, you know, we've seen a number of things. I've, I've uh, personally been in the organization uh, for 20 years. I've been leading uh, Bart Mel Company, which is one of our two uh, primary operating entities for the last five years. Um, so certainly the advent of construction workers being organized, um, which took place in the 20s and 30s. Obviously, we've, we've been through that and we've learned a lot from it. And we've benefited greatly from it, I might add. Um, and, and then certainly you know, the, the Safety Act that we've been discussing today, 1970, over the last 50 years. Um, you know, so a lot of lessons, a lot of evolution of our business. Uh, Bart Mal's core purpose, you know, the, the, the way that we phrase it is, you know, the reason that we exist, our reason for existence is, uh, is to build with the American spirit. And we say people, projects and communities. People comes first for a reason. Um, the way that I like to describe it and kind of paraphrase it and make it my own uh, is to say that, you know, we exist to build people up in the communities that they live through the projects that we build. So for us as a construction company, the projects themselves, our core work is simply a means to build up people. Um, the singular word that I like to use the most in this regard is, is we want our team members to be edified in their work. That is to be made better by their work. Um, and there's kind of a soft, almost spiritual context for me for that word. A construction worker, certainly, hey, construction's great exercise. They can be physically made stronger and healthier in their work, but we want to create an environment where they're edified um, more than just physically. Uh, we want to create an environment and an atmosphere uh, where when they come home, hopefully for dinner and hopefully on time, frankly, that's what that would be our preference. You know, they can have conversations with their loved ones about what they've learned and what their ideas are and what innovations are taking place in our industry and so on and so forth. So for me, safety really starts and ends with our with our core purpose. Just a very brief story as it relates to me personally in the last number of years, we've been through a period of, of explosive growth within not only our industry, but certainly Bart Mel has been a beneficiary of that and our, and our business is growing. So if our core value, if our reason for existence is to build people up, to have them be edified in their work and our business is growing, that means more people are working. That's a good thing. But it also means that if our safety performance is not improving at a greater rate than our growth, that means that more people are getting hurt by the fact that Bart Mallow is growing. And that's a problem. That's a problem for me personally. And it flies in the face, frankly, of our reason for existence. And so as we grow this company and take advantage of these extraordinary market conditions, we need to be doubling down even harder on our safety performance so that that performance improves, um, uh, you know, not just proportionally, but faster than our growth so that we are putting more people to work and they're living in a safer environment, being more edified, building up those communities. Again, the projects are a means for us. What a great what a great concept to be edified by your work and that we can move on that from there to talking about the actual experiences of workers and issues they've had within the systems that do exist. And Magali, I want to go to you. Walk us through what a day is like in the life of a poultry worker and what kind of dangers they face. 
Yeah, well, the situation, as you know, uh, it was pretty highlighted during the pandemic, but the, the issues were even before the pandemic because workers had been uh, struggling with the line speed issue, with the bathroom breaks, with the chemicals. And so during line the line speed issue, can you just explain what that means for people? Yes, the, what it is is like uh, the, you know, they've been in, they industrialized the way that they process the chicken. And so pretty much from the farm goes to the poultry with the process to the processing plant. And from there, the chicken is hanged and runs in lines, you know, and to different processing areas. So the line speed uh, that uh, begins to the slaughtering house runs to 174 birds per minute. And that was increased during the pandemic in 2020. Uh, when workers were exposed to get sick and die, the Trump administration allowed the USDA to give some waivers to some companies and some plants across the country to, to increase the line speed. Obviously, because there is no regulations whatsoever, uh, the, I, see, I saw all the companies increasing the line speed because there is no regulation on the line speed. There is not enough inspectors to check uh, whether or not the, the company is violating the, the, the right uh, line speed. But anyway, that's been an issue that workers have been fighting even before the pandemic and obviously during the pandemic that situation became worse because many workers began getting sick and less workers were doing the job of many and so and still the situation goes like that the high chemicals uh that workers don't know what chemicals they use and the parasitic acid that has very little uh investigation of the long-term effects on workers and so right now the issue is that because before the pandemic, the workers were already injured. During the pandemic, they were exposed to get sick and die and exposed to a faster line speed. And right now, the workers, I could tell you that most of the workers, and I could say all the workers processing the chicken are injured doing the job and, and working faster than before. And so right now, the issue has been also the bathroom breaks. The, the workers are not allowed to take enough bathroom breaks. Many of them are forced to wear diapers because they don't want to pee on themselves while processing the chicken because has, that has happened, that still happens. And so really the workers don't have power because these plants are located in white rural communities where they don't have community support. And when you don't have community support, you feel so powerless in a community that is anti-immigrant, anti-people um, uh, of color. And so right now in Arkansas, we are accepting more refugees, but it's very concerning that these, co these organizations that are bringing these refugees are locating these workers to the poultry, to the poultry industry without having them uh, learning about their rights or learning about what they can do to 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 bring uh, to organize together to bring power and that's what we had to do during the pandemic we had to, we didn't have any other option but to organize because the workers felt pretty abandoned by OSHA by the USDA and so and that is what is that what brought the workers to keep organizing and so that's what brings some brought some little victories but still the issues are going and the situation is getting worse well i want to bring in socket here can you give us a story of one or two workers that you've met in disaster zones and what kind of protections they had or didn't have from osha yeah you know 
you have to start by visualizing a disaster zone. Uh, when um, a hurricane or flood or fire hits, um, it, it usually impacts um, miles, if not hundreds of miles of American landscape. Um, homes that um, stood somewhere can disappear. Um, entire um, tracts of land can face upheaval. Um, you know, dozens of school districts at a time uh, can face the complete collapse of their schools. And when, um, when an event like that happens, a clock starts ticking. Everything depends on a fast recovery at scale. Because if you wait, then the water seeps in or the ash goes into the earth. A uh, place becomes more and more toxic and less and less livable. Um, so that's really the kind of pressure that these workers drive into. So now, firstly, there's no infrastructure for them. So hundreds of workers will uh, live in the Home Depot parking lot, uh, sleep on the floor, wash themselves with bottles of water while they build. The building itself is a Herculean effort. Um, you know, if you line up all the rooftops in Florida that need to be rebuilt after a single hurricane, that's 10 football fields easily, maybe 20, right? Um, and it's relentless and it's hot. So that means that there are issues um, with just normal health and safety. There are muscle-related issues uh, dealing with speed. There are heat-related injuries. Um, one worker who I know very well uh, was on a rooftop in Florida um, and because of theft of payment, hadn't eaten, and because of the sun, became dizzy. And hunger and heat uh, made him uncomfortable enough that he collapsed uh, and fell from a steep roof onto a floor, um, hit his head, and nearly died, right? And so this is an example of where there isn't just one culprit there. It's a totality of circumstances. Add to that the layers of subcontracting um, and the lack of labor standards connected to all of this federal money that flows down. The project he was working on was a FEMA project. It was um, funded by FEMA through subcontractors. And it's an example of where his labor rights, uh, whether he was documented or not, should have been protected if the system worked as it should. And as David know and knows, and many of you know, um, as much as we can do um, on the top, if there isn't enforcement built into every, every layer, it's very hard for that worker to protect himself. He did ask for a harness and for a break, but he was told, if you don't want to do the work, then go back home. Go back home doesn't just mean go back to your car. It can mean I'll call immigration and you'll be deported to your home country. So those are the connected issues. And the first place to start, um, you know, before we even get to policy, is just to recognize this workforce as a workforce. John talked about construction workers and auto workers. Uh, Magali talked about poultry workers. It took a while for these workers, um, you know, to, um, to be recognized in the American landscape. And this new workforce similarly um, as climate change 
um, expands our consciousness of what the risks are. Um, the risks these workers face need to be more and more recognized. John, your company has actually collaborated with OSHA and with labor unions to help mitigate some of the dangers on the job. Can you tell us a little bit about those partnerships and what elements you see as critical to making a work site safe? Yeah, sure. Andrea, let me just start by saying to both Magali and Saket, those stories, um, you know, they're heartbreaking. They're heartbreaking to think about a labor force, um, to think about that being normal, because that is not that is not normal. Uh, it might be common, but it is abnormal and it is not appropriate. <laughs> Just start start there. Um, okay, you asked me specifically about um, about our partnership. So, um, hey, we talked about our core purpose already uh, at Bartmel, and one of our core values we have three: integrity, partnership, and empowerment. So, um, construction is a very fragmented industry. So, when we hit a job, um, if we're going to build an auto plant, say for um, you know, I'm talking about a, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of a project or a, a hospital for a hundred million dollars. I'm just trying to kind of frame in scale so that people can visualize what it is that we actually, um, you know, where we participate in the market. Very fragmented. So we're, you know, we're a prime contractor, uh, often referred to as a general contractor. Of course, there's subcontractors, there's engineers and architects. And, you know, there, there, there are dozens of entities uh, that require to work together to build something, you know, on time and at budget with safety uh, and quality, of course. And so partnership is key to us being successful in any of the things that we do, safety or otherwise. But certainly uh, the unions and OSHA are key partners in, 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 the, in the realm of safety. So um, there are a number of formal partnerships that get formed on a project by project basis. Um, you know, metrics get established and um, uh, performance indicators get measured. But I think, I think probably more importantly and more holistically, you know, we, our industry has um, has had an opportunity to mature beyond what what it is that we heard from Magali and Socket, and that you know OSHA for us is is uh, I'll say kind of provides bumper posts, provides a framework. David did a great job in his intro describing you know what the purpose was back in 1970, um, and that purpose is you know fundamentally and firmly in place. Um, so essentially, the, the the OSHA rules and regulations are nothing more to us than, you know, just a bare minimum guideline. That's just the foundation from which we are working. Uh, and then the unions, of course, are, you know, are, are, are partners in, in, in providing a trained and responsible workforce. So when, when a union, when a journeyman carpenter hits a, a project, um, you know, they are trained. And that, you know, that, that, whether that's the carpenters or the millwrights or the boilermakers or the iron workers, all of these very well-established unions have, strong training programs in place. So we're, we're, we're receiving, um, you know, professional craftsmen and women to do their work. And then for us, um, you know, the fourth partner there, or the, the third partner that I'm going to mention, uh, us being the fourth, is our clients. Our clients have a responsibility or where they, play, where they have the biggest impact is by setting a high expectation. If our clients are willing to let anything go, then and there's very low barrier of entry to work on a project then you're, you're going to get what you pay for. Um, but if our clients, and we work specifically in, um, I'll say, sophisticated places, auto plants, um, steel mills, power plants, you know, these are the facilities that we build, hospitals, higher education facilities, stadiums. Our clients have a high expectation for safety. 
the number one thing that we can do wrong, the number one thing that we can do to ruin a relationship with a client is not to have a, a late project or is not to go over budget, but to get people hurt on their job. So they play a huge role in that partnership. And then I've, I've already shared with you, you know, our, you know, our kind of uh, underpinnings of values as it relates to why, um, you know, why it's so important for us to maintain a safe workplace. But the way that we do it is primarily through uh, through planning, through planning, just like when you're out in your yard trying to do a project. Um, the way that you're going to get hurt is because you're using the wrong tool and because you don't know what you're doing or because you're in a rush. Um, so we're just we just try to be absolutely relentless in the way that we plan our work so that people are always using the right tools. They always have the right amount of time uh, allocated. They always have the right equipment. They always have the right number of people and they have, they're essentially working to a plan. Um, I'll pause there. Well, great. Well, um, David, I want to turn to you. You heard John say that, you know, OSHA rules and, and their company are used as kind of like a guideline, the bare minimum guidelines, but you also heard from Magali and Socket. Where do you feel like the OSHA Act could be updated? Do you feel like you know, it, it's it still stands the test of time, or does it need to be um, revisited? That, that's a great question. It's a complicated answer, but OSHA's played a, a central role in eliminating many workplace hazards. You talked about the reduction in fatal injuries, and the risk of non-fatal injuries has also gone down tremendously. The extremely toxic exposures, asbestos, lead, benzene, they haven't totally disappeared, but they were ubiquitous before OSHA, and now they're mostly under control but progress has slowed. Work injury and death rates are no longer decreasing. In fact, they're pretty flat right now. More inspectors would make a big difference. Uh, OSHA is a tiny agency with enough inspectors to visit every workplace once every 160 years. And that was before the pandemic. It's harder to do inspections now. OSHA has standards, but they're like minimum wage. They're often not strong enough. You want them to be stronger. Some employers, like John's, go well beyond OSHA's minimum standards. They recognize the importance of protecting workers, but many don't even comply with those standards. And the process to set new standards is broken. You know, we issued the silica standard in 2016, 19 years after OSHA started the process to issue that standard. So each new standard takes a tremendous amount of work. The Federal Register notice for the silica standard was the equivalent of 1,800 manuscript pages. The actual standard was only a couple of dozen pages. The rest were all the analyses of economics, technological feasibility, risk, all the things that are required to issue a standard. The process is so resource intensive that OSHA has no standard for many common workplace hazards like airborne pathogens like coronavirus or, or heat, which are heard from Sackett is a huge issue and getting worse because of climate change or, or line speed and the ergonomic hazards that Magali just described. There are no standards for those. So enforcement just of what's called the OSHA general duty clause is extremely difficult. And for every standard OSHA has to show an exposure has a significant material effect. You know, Tony Mazaki called this the body in the morgue method. Essentially, you have to show the hazard is killing people before you can do anything about it. So given how long it takes to issue a standard, it guarantees many more people will be hurt before OSHA can do much about it. Yeah. And then on top of that, the American workplace and the workforce has changed dramatically in the 50 years since the law was passed. A much smaller percentage of workers were in unions, so they have less pr protection. Um, Professor David Weil wrote about the fissuring of the workforce. You know, at one time, most or all 
workers in the workplace would be employed by the corporation whose name was on the gate or the factory door. Now you have multiple employers in every worksite with contractors, subcontractors, so-called independent contractors who have, they have no OSHA coverage. And the entire gig economy is an OSHA free zone. So the challenges that OSHA faces are huge and they've gotten worse over the last few decades. Wow. Well, have there been lessons learned in the pandemic? I'd love to hear from all of you. Um, Magali, let's start with you and others. Feel free to chime in. Well, really, the lessons learned it was that the government did nothing to protect the workers and, and really uh, did everything to protect the corporations. So I think uh, it was a, a really a visual or a moment for us to understand that the uh, food system is broken, that a lot of things that are in place are not working for workers. And so for me, for example, uh, working with workers, they, I know that they don't trust OSHA. They don't trust the current institutions that are there to protect workers, but workers do not do not trust them. And so for me in, and for the workers has been a journey to seek other solutions, you know, beyond what the government can do, how we can hold the corporations accountable. How can we uh, make uh, the market uh, protect the workers' rights, you know? And so for us, it's been really a lesson of of what it doesn't work what it needs to be changed and and really to create the power with workers is crucial to all of this socket do you have a, a similar view given the population you work with yes absolutely one thing we saw very clearly during the pandemic was that some workers have to be on the front lines for the rest of us to function right we celebrated essential workers from the rooftops outside at 7 p.m. at shift change. And um, the resilience workers I represent are the essential workers of the climate change era. Their vulnerability and connection to the pandemic was pretty clear in one example right at the beginning uh, of, of, uh, of the pandemic. Um, the first climate disasters of the pandemic era hit in Michigan, um, record-breaking rains flooded uh, cities and broke dams. And uh, subcontractors, labor brokers, brought workers from Florida to Michigan to rebuild hospitals. Well, Governor Whitner, uh, Whitmer um, uh, had instituted excellent policies to protect people um, from uh, the virus, right? But the uh, litigation uh, uh, by the workers revealed that um, labor brokers um, chose to uh, uh, chose not to implement these protections. They put eight people in a room instead of two to a room. Um, they didn't provide masks. Um, you know, the moral of the story is that all of this is really connected. Um, and somebody has to incur the cost uh, of public good when there's a virus going on and there still need to be crews of workers. Yes, the federal government needs to play a role. Yes, the state government needs to play a role. But we also need strong worker organizations and high road employers. So for example, similar to, to John and, and his eloquent philosophy of you know, edification, we found really willing high road employers in our sector to partner with us so that being good to workers is not a losing proposition in a low road economy. 
know, that's very, very important, particularly in the context of a pandemic. Right. David, as, as you know, someone who led OSHA for so many years, um, what was it like for you? Were you feeling like there were lessons being learned at OSHA? Um, was that frustrating for you to, to see what was happening and what wasn't happening? You know, absolutely. Um, you know, I want to start with a thought experiment here. Imagine there were no Zoom, that CEOs, attorneys, professors like myself, if we all had to go into work starting on day one, do you think the country would have made a greater effort to keep workplaces safe? We, we, everybody would have said, where's OSHA? Why aren't we protecting us? Um, but what really happened, as we all know, is that many workers sacrificed their lives to keep the economy going, to make sure food is harvested and processed and shipped, and that our sick and long-term care patients were taken care of. Of course, workers of color were overrepresented in those jobs, and they played, they paid a really tragic price. Um, you know, COVID exposed the workplace environmental justice issues that have been present since the founding of the Republic, but could not be more clear today. And so we know, and OSHA knows how to control coronavirus, because it's just like other airborne hazards. You apply the hierarchy of controls. First, you try to make the environment safe for everyone through eliminating the hazard. You know, make sure potentially infectious workers stay home and you have to pay them to do that and implement engineering controls like ventilation and filtration and, and air disinfection. And then you give people PPE like respirators, which could be necessary, but they're hard to wear. And they, you have to use them if other controls are not sufficient. Um, I think when we look at what OSHA's response was, it was it's been a disappointment um, under Trump and under President Biden. Um, you know, candidate Biden promised if he were elected, OSHA would issue an emergency standard requiring employers to implement worker protections from COVID. And standards are what makes a difference. People follow standards. Um, and so OSHA drafted two emergency standards, one covering healthcare workplaces and the other covering everywhere else. And when these were ready to be issued in spring of 2021, the case numbers were dropping and the period vaccinations were going to really get us out of this. The Delta variant had not arrived. You know, Omicron was far in the distance. And so the White House only allowed OSHA to issue the healthcare standard and killed the one which covered everyone else. And that to me was a tragic mistake. Um, perhaps not a surprising one because going back to that thought experiment, decision makers and the powerful of this country don't perceive the risk faced by many of the America's workers in, the, in these difficult jobs. So I think the lesson is we can apply what we know about workplace hazards to COVID just like we did to asbestos, but we haven't done that because we haven't really cared enough about protecting these workers. And to me, that's a tragedy. John, how about for you at, at Barton Mallow, what were some lessons that were taken from the pandemic? Thank you. For whoever is muting and unmuting me, I am eternally grateful. Um, uh, lessons, I'll tell you what, lesson number one uh, for us as an organization, and it's, 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 certainly inherit to our kind of day to day, but was to stay apolitical. Um, I mean, this so much of, you know, if you talk for 10 seconds and you just earnestly from the heart and you're, someone's going to be very upset with what you just said. Um, and so uh, stay apolitical, no matter what was kind of uh, position number one, uh, very communicate very clearly to our people that our number one priority was in fact workplace safety Certainly early in the pandemic, we were very, very concerned about business continuity as well. So those two things were, you know, 
kind of this mutual value proposition between, you know, worker safety, worker edification, and just the fact that we can can, can, can continue to exist. Uh, what are we going to do to continue to exist? Was a, a you know a big concern in the in the in the early days. Um, probably as the pandemic has gone on, we've all learned by way of this meeting, for example, of t- totally new ways to do things. And so I think what it's what it's, it's meant for us um, as we've implemented, you know, probably dozens and dozens of new processes to um, whether it's the surveys coming into the, uh, you know, project gates or whether it's the temperature taking and the privacy issues and so on and so forth, was we we learned to communicate differently and better with one another around best practices than we ever have before. Uh, obviously, means and methods are a big part of construction anyway. So you would think that we'd be really good at communicating, you know, how to build, you know, how to hang drywall upside down in a in a cement factory. Um, but we we have never communicated as well as we as, as we were forced to it and eventually kind of adapted and overcame asking more questions, listening better than ever uh, and sharing best practices um, were huge lessons for us to, throughout the process. Well, well, that, that's great to hear that there, that there were improvements on that front that came out of something, you know, so terrible this two years of the pandemic. Well, I want to stick with you, John, as we as we move to some possible solutions. And I want to ask you, you know, what do you think are the best ways to move more businesses towards seeing safety as an as an investment, as clearly you have, and not just as a cost or an expense? Yeah. Um... Yeah, going first, I'll try to be brief because I'm sure that the, the questions of my colleagues are so much more, or the answers of my colleagues, I'm sure, are so much more interesting than our own. But let me just start with, a, with just one quick stat. Um, so we're now four months into this calendar year. Uh, Bart Mal Company has has worked 1.5 million man hours uh, in that in this in these four months. Essentially, you know, think about 2,200 people working every day at height. I was on a job yesterday, 300 feet in the air with our iron workers. They're connecting steel 300 feet in the air above the street, the cityscape of, of downtown Detroit. So that's what our people do. And in those 1.5 million man hours, we've had one lost time injury this year so far. That is that one person that works for us wasn't able to come back to work. They got injured to, to a degree where they weren't able to come back tomorrow, the very next day. There's been five recordable incidents total. That is anything greater than a first aid. So I share those stats, not as a boast, but just as a as a statement to say that this is possible. The number one um, argument we get into with respect to safety is is uh, stuff happens. Work is dangerous. You know, you're going to do this kind of work. You know, people are going to get hurt. No, they're not. They don't have to be. They don't have to get hurt because we can plan our way through it. And we can respect our, ourselves, you know, we can respect each other through it. We can be our brothers and sisters, keep her through it. And we don't have to get hurt today. So as you're, you know, what our foreman, we say that our highest leverage point is with our field foreman. They have no more than a half a dozen or so people working, you know, at their direction in, in these dangerous places every day. And if that foreman wakes up in the morning and says, not my crew, not today, it's just simply not going to happen on my watch because we've planned the workout well enough and because we have enough respect for each other to just get through today without any of my people um, being injured. So how, you asked specifically about how to get other people to do that. I mean, for me, it's through peer pressure. I mean, I'm telling you right now on a, in the construction space, like if, if someone else doesn't do it, we're going to take your work and do it safely. <laughs> so part of it's through peer pressure. And I would also say just as in listening to this 
uh, dialogue, the advocacy, the advocacy work that's being done by Socket and Magali in particular, again, like I said, it's inspiring. Ask for help uh, because I think it's inspiring. I think we ought to be able to pull each other and in multiple industries along and, and just keep going forward. Keep making the progress and don't be discouraged. The progress that's been made is extraordinary. And in some places we can do very dangerous things very safely. So let's let's try to help each other move along that pathway. Well, David, do you feel that the path forward for OSHA is stronger enforcement, maybe further increasing the penalties um, to pressure companies who aren't, you know, like Barton Mallow doing the right thing? Um, I know the OSHA penalties were already raised significantly, or do we, we need to completely reimagine the approach? Well, I, I think you need carrots and sticks. I, you know, I don't think we're going to reimagine anything with Congress in the place it is today, but First, let me say, I agree with John and Sackett, the companies that look at safety as an investment and on a cost do much better. The example I like to point to is Hasbro, which is a, you know, a game company, a toy company with, they've got a factory in East Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which is a, you know, a high tax state. The energy is expensive. It's a union plant. And they're members of the voluntary protection program that OSHA runs. It's, it's a voluntary agreement that, uh, Hasbro made with its workers to go well beyond what OSHA asks them to do. Uh, the rest of that industry has moved to Asia. But what the Hasbro vice president told me is we could stay in Massachusetts because we're so much more productive because of that safety program. It affects everything we do. In fact, they recently brought back Play-Doh from Asia to manufacture in the United States because they do so well. I wrote about that in the Harvard Business Review, if anyone wants to go find that article. The flip side, though, is we need stronger enforcement and we need higher penalties. Um, there are many steps OSHA could take. Um, OSHA fines are very significant for small employers, but they're tiny for large employers. A few thousand dollars for a serious violation is meaningless for a big company. Uh, it's, they're far lower than the fines issued by other agencies like EPA. Uh, for example, there was a, a tank of sulfuric acid that exploded at a Delaware oil refinery, half owned by Shell Oil and half by Saudi Aramco. It killed a worker named Jeff Davis. I've met with his wife and his kids. Jeff's body was literally dissolved in acid. The OSHA penalty was $175,000 to a, a huge company. In that same incident, thousands of dead fi fish and crabs were discovered, which led the EPA to issue a citation of $10 million. It was hard to talk to Jeff Davis's wife that saying those fish were worth, you know, more than her husband who was killed. Um, so higher fines would send a very strong message to employers that workers' lives need to be protected. But even more effective would be criminal penalties against plant managers, executives, board members, where a firm's actions or their lack of actions resulted in a death or serious injury of a worker. You know, it sounds perhaps uh, extreme from what we have here, but many countries, Great Britain, Germany, Singapore, have laws like this. In contrast, in the United States, if a worker is killed on the job and the employer received a willful citation from OSHA, that, that crime is considered a misdemeanor against the company, maximum six months in jail. Of course, you can't jail a corporation, so no one goes to jail at all. Essentially, there's only a financial penalty. Um, so we need just a restructuring of the penalties. And I think criminal penalties would make a big difference. 
Magali, you know, Americans eat a lot of chicken. Certainly we do in my household. And I'm just wondering if you see a role for consumers in trying to improve things for poultry workers. Yes, definitely. Uh, during, during this journey of, of seeking solutions uh, and knowing that the current uh, agencies to protect workers were not doing their job, enough uh, and not wanting to really lose the trust of workers and trying to really know, learn from others who had built programs like uh, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers that built the uh, the social, the worker-driven social responsibility model. In 2018, I first uh, traveled with a group of poultry workers to learn about that model. And from there, poultry workers saw that that was the hope for them to change drastically this industry because through these legal binding agreements that holds the corporation accountable and that really risks the uh, the potential market if they don't follow or they don't protect the, the human rights of workers. There are in the tomato pickers, is that right? Right, and that it was expanded to the dairy workers in Vermont and other workers in the um, construction sector in um, with the tool. And now we are exploring how to adopt that model into the poultry industry because workers need to be part of the solution uh, process. They need to be part of the implementation. They need to be able to freely speak up about any violation on the rights. And so we see that this is the only solution that we see right now that could potentially drastically change systemically the, the poultry industry to protect these workers. Because if we wait until OSHA or the administration open up the eyes to protect workers, we cannot, we can't keep exposing workers to this abuse. And so I think that many people should take a look into what programs are working to protect the workers and how we can expand those programs to keep protecting workers in other industries. And so to answer the question in this program, I think the, the, it, it's very crucial that consumers learned about where the food comes from. I think there is a big disconnection about the food that we consume and to really what's happening with these workers is not only the animals that are suffering, these workers who are suffering because they're exposed to these abuses. And so the, obviously the, the, the consumers have a big role on holding the companies accountable, the supply chain, to force them to adopt this code of conducts that could potentially expose um, protect the human rights of these workers. So, yes, I think that if consumers get more involved into holding these companies accountable, many things could change. And I just encourage people to follow the work of Venceremos to keep engaging into the work that we are doing because the workers are in the front line and the workers need and want solutions to these problems. So really starting with educating ourselves. Socket, you know, so many of the challenges we discussed today are uh, ones that are faced disproportionately by immigrant workers, as you have described. And this is, you know, a hidden workforce um, that makes them particularly vulnerable, vulnerable to exploitation. What solutions come to mind for you when we when you think about how to transform, um, you know, work and safety conditions for them? 
you know, um, the thing about resilience is that climate change uh, is an experience every American is having. And inside of it, um, the problems faced by these workers can uh, really be solved by so many sectors of our ecosystem. So, um, you know, here is a sector where there's an exponentially rising labor demand year after year because of more and more disaster. So if you work on policy, then you can help attach labor standards to state money and federal money that Congress has already approved to go down and fuel the rebuilding that these workers are right now doing without as much as a harness. Um, If you're a company, um, even if you're not in this sector, there's a rising disaster restoration sector. But many, many companies are stakeholders um, where where John is, uh, Detroit, is among the most flooded uh, cities in the country. One in five American fl- basements is flooded every year. This is a workforce issue. It's a resilience issue for large and small corporations. So if you're a company, join our growing high road table and be part of um, shaping how Billions of dollars, as, as, as John put it, um, are, are dollars that fuel businesses um, where, you know, standards can be high. Um, and then to David's point about what the administration can do, um, you know, those of us in organizations like Magali's and mine, uh, we need to make sure we have the Biden administration's back. We're not vocal enough about health and safety issues. And when we are, um, most of the conversation is about the injuries you can see or sometimes the ones you can hear. But as David said, you know, our workers work amid so many um, airborne and bloodborne pathogens. There's a gap in the conversation. I mean, another huge gap is mental health. You know, as workers work in an environment that is traumatic, um, the wear and tear is not only on the body, but also the will. And so we need to have those kinds of conversations. So if you're an organizer out there, um, then let's expand, work with us to expand the conversation about uh, about the kinds of health and safety that fall within our purview. The, the silver lining is there's points of everybody and on-ramps to everyone. And we can actually do this, a lot of this we can do um, in the near term without Congress. We can partner and cooperate and enforce, raise, uh, and define new standards. Great. Well, I think we have some time uh, for questions and a bunch have been submitted. So I'm just going to um, throw these out there and whoever wants to respond can do so. And um, one question, actually, that I feel like, you know, maybe we've addressed a bit is how can workers who are undocumented be organized given restrictions with the NLRB? Um, I think that one way that you would say, but Saka and Magali, please chime in, is to get involved with groups like yours. Is that right? I'll let Magali chime in first because she's doing heroic work organizing undocumented workers. Yes. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I think uh, we should be mindful to know to say that uh, yes, that all the workers are protected under NLRB, the Section Seven and Eight. But really, when it comes with undocumented workers, it brings this concern about whether or not the, the, the employer cannot return the job back on undocumented workers. So we always have to be uh, very straight on the risk, uh, whether they are undocumented on or documented workers during the pandemic. Uh, that law was the only law that uh, we had 
to keep on going with the actions. Uh, so that's what we really used, you know, to uh, to bring old workers to organize. Uh, at a point, I was organizing five different plants uh, in in the northwest Arkansas. And so we always had to bring lawyers, you know, to help us to do this work, to protect workers. So whenever workers went on a strike, also we provided them uh, the the resources and the education that it was needed because it obviously, it always, this, there is this risk, you know, that workers will lose their jobs and whether or not there is, will be like ways to, uh, to return their jobs back, there is a process, you know, work, where workers don't have uh, income, where workers are in this uh, vulnerability or what's going to happen. So we always have to be very uh, straightforward on the risk, uh, but always encouraging workers that if they don't stand up, then the situation can get worse. And thankfully to those actions that we did in 2020, companies were responding, you know, even they were worried about their image. They were worried about uh, not having enough workers to process the chicken, but at least they were responding to those uh, little demands that we're doing back in 2020. Great. David, here's a question for you. What role does state and local law play in making workers safer? Is it part is part of the issue dependent on where you live in the U.S.? You know, that's a really good question. It certainly is. Um, there are some states that have their own OSHA programs. California and Washington have ones that in some ways are stronger, or have better standards than the federal government. Um, others have really weak OSHA programs. The law says they have to be at least as effective as federal OSHA, but, but they're not. I think the one lesson of COVID is that state and local health departments have a really important role to play in protecting workers. And many of them had active programs 50 years ago, but then really disbanded them, essentially saying, well, the feds are going to take care of this, but they won't, it's clearly. So there's no reason that a state health health department or a local health department couldn't play a role when there are obvious hazards at workplaces. Um, I want to go back a little bit to the question, though, that Megali just answered, to say that, you know, the government has a role here as well. If we allow low-road employers to hire undocumented workers and keep them fearful to, from complaining about hazards, that affects every worker in the United States. You can't have safe workers if you have some workers who have no rights around their safety. And so it has to be clear, and we have to really make sure the government understands this, that every worker needs protection. I mean, the OSHA position is that it doesn't make a difference what your documentation status is. You have the same rights, but that doesn't mean that workers can't be intimidated by their employer. So we had a memorandum of understanding with Homeland Security that they would do no raids at workplaces where OSHA was doing investigations. And even more importantly, I think it has to be made clear that the Labor Department and Homeland Security can offer what are called U visas that the ability to stay in the United States if you're a witness or you've been involved in any sort of court case, including when an employer uh, is has been inspected by OSHA. So I think this is an issue that we have to raise with the government to just encourage that to take place because we can't allow conditions to get worse and worse and worse at different workplaces because uh, the employees who are hired have no voice out of fear. Yeah, uh, 
on that note of employees that, you know, lack voice, can anyone speak to the challenges and solutions in other sectors, such as domestic or agricultural work, where protections can be minimal? Well, I'll, I'll give a, an example that connects the dots a little. Um, you know, in um, 2011, I believe, um, there was an extraordinary um, sit-down strike by migrant workers, um, young student guest workers at a Hershey chocolate factory in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, this was um, as a result of backbreaking hours and low pay and false promises. Um, the factory tried to um, undercut its unionized workforce by hollowing out one part of its factory and importing um, guest workers who could be paid much less. And health and safety was a key concern. Well, one of the most interesting parts of the solution there was that um, the DOL recognized the Worker Health and Safety Committee as the safety inspectors. In other words, um, we were able to have um, workers themselves become the inspectors of safety standards. You know, that's an example of where worker democracy, workplace democracy, gets expanded um, through um, the avenue of health and safety inspections. You know, we all are concerned about the future of democracy in this country. Most adults spend most of their day at the workplace. And so we're also concerned about worker democracy. And we often focus on worker voice around raising wages. But equally, uh, particularly because we've got this complaint-driven system, everything starts with a complaint, right? Well, workers can be the inspectors um, of their own workplaces. Um, and particularly with high road employers, so for example, we have built a high road table in the resilience economy. Um, large scale companies are joining. And part of our agreement with them is to use the morning safety meeting to raise standards and to uh, allow our committee members to be the inspectors. And, you know, I think this is connected to what John was saying. What it actually creates over time is a really good feedback loop between the workers and the company. And companies perhaps are afraid of this because, uh, you know, they, they worry that it'll be a fight every day. That's actually not how it works out. The real way that it works out is that company supervisors receive really timely uh, advice on a daily basis about how improvements can be made. And that's that creates a flexible workplace. You know, so it's these are examples of how um, on the ground worker voice and worker power uh, can actually be in everybody's in interests and how health and safety in particular can be a way to enter that conversation. So really inviting people to give the feedback uh, immediately, I guess, and regularly, like you say, in, in a daily meeting. That's right. Well, here's one more question that maybe, um, Magali, I think this was in response to something you were saying. It's, it says, food packaging has no information on workers, even though cartons of eggs talk about how the chickens were raised. Is there potential in labeling food and other consumer products about what uh, about the workers who are behind that product? That's a really innovative idea. Is it something that you have thought about pushing for? Yeah, well, th there is not such a thing. I think we're pushing into uh, creating a program that will regulate and protect the human rights of workers. 
but right now there is not like such a label or a way to know where the chicken comes from. And particularly, I will just highlight that people that eat organic chicken, I could say that the organic chicken is not being processed any way better, uh, that the conditions are still bad and worse and in many cases because those tend to be a smaller poultry companies. And so the smaller the company is, the worse the situation can get. So there is not like, uh, ways to get a- around that unless you know for sure that you bite the chicken in that form and that chicken you see watch how it's being killed otherwise if you buy any product from the supermarket it will probably come with abuses of uh, on the labor force john how about for construction projects is there a way to i know you know is it just through your reputation as a company that you can go out and say you know this building was built by a company that really values worker safety and has taken all kinds of steps to make sure that, you know, workers are being edified through their work. Yeah, I think, you know, it definitely starts on the client side for us. I mean, it's so much easier to do what it is that we strive for when we've got a client that is setting a high bar and, and creating that environment. Um, so that that's a big part of it. Um, in terms of the, uh, you know, attraction, you know, we talk, we tell our own people, I tell them, you know, <laughs> as often as I can, you know, hey, hey, Joe Schmo. Yesterday I mentioned I was with some iron workers. So I spent some time with some rod busters. Rod busters are a subset of iron workers that, that install reinforcing steel and concrete. So we're talking of 10 rod busters. And, and the, the message is, guys, this job site, well, while you are working on our payroll, this, is to, this ought to be our expectations that this is the cleanest safest, most well-organized, most well-planned project that you've ever been on in your life. That's our expectation. And if it's not, then we need to talk. And that's why I personally am here you know, to share with you. This happens to be construction, National Construction Safety Week. Um, yesterday was a day focused on mental health. Um, and it was great. We had this little mental health conversation after I gave my little stump speech. And how about some feedback, guys? And the first guy that spoke up said, I appreciate the note on mental health and we're going up 21 stories today. Make sure you, you make sure you strap your chin hat or your hat's going to blow off. So like, that's a great example of kind of that, that practical, um, the, uh, the practical communication that Socket referenced earlier for us, those huddles happen twice a day, both at morning and at lunch. And yeah, it's an opportunity at that high leverage point that we talked about earlier at the foreman and craftsman level to talk about, how in the heck somebody could put, you know, possibly get hurt just in the next few hours. And we're going to make sure that we avoid that. Well, I think we're out of time. I want to thank all the panelists for this fascinating discussion. And Maureen, I'll, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you so much, Andrea. That was fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Socket, Magali, John, David. I am inspired. I learned a lot. This is a really amazing conversation. Really appreciate your time. Andrea, great job moderating this conversation and bringing all your expertise to the conversation. Really appreciate your work. I also want to thank my behind-the-scenes colleagues who make this all work, Matt Helmer, Tony Mastria, Victoria Prince, Yuri Chang, and Adrian Lee. Um, they do amazing work and, and really appreciate everything that they put into to making these events work. I also want to thank the folks on social media who've been tweeting about today's events. It always helps us to, to hear what resonates with you. Uh, 
Thanks so much to the audience for your engagement. Please do take a moment to give us some feedback in the polls tab. We always really appreciate getting uh, your feedback and advice on how we can make these events uh, better, more engaging, and more useful for you. Um, and just final reminder, May 26th, a Workers' Bill of Rights, what we want and how to get there. Uh, please join us then, and thanks so much. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>